Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Osban, here with my friend and clever to Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sukkah, daf Tetrav, page 15. On this daf, we have two nice Mishnahs. So in, I guess, a typical podcast fashion that we do, each of us will take a Mishnah and discuss it, and I'll get started right away with the first one. Tikrashen ale mazira. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Beit Shammai Omerim Mifak Peik, Benotel Achat Mi Benatayim, Ubeit Hel Omerim Mifak Peik, I can't say that word, O Notel Achat Mi Benatayim. So the case here is that let's say you have a roof made of boards, okay, and we're going, you know, and we will see later on with the discussion as we saw previously, the question is when we talk about these boards, how wide are these actual boards, okay? And there's no coat of plaster, right? So in other words, it's sort of like an unfinished roof. So you have this roof that just has these boards on it. And essentially, we know that these types of wooden boards that we talked about earlier in the previous Mishnah could be used as chach, even though they're sort of a finished project, you know, product. So Rabbi Yehuda says that there's actually a machlokas of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel here. And what is it over, right? How could you make this type of roof uh, with that already has the boards on it, how can you make it actually uh, fit to be the kosher slack for the sukkah? And so Rabbi Yehud explains that Beit Shammai says you have to move each board, right? So it's like you actually place the board, right, for the sake of doing the mitzvah of building the sukkah. And you also have to remove one of the boards that's amongst, uh, that is in all of these boards. So move all the boards and remove one of the boards. Whereas Beit Hillel says, either you need to, uh, you know, move the boards or you have to remove one, but you certainly don't have to do both. Rabbi Meir Omer, so Rabbi Meir disagrees with Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Meir says, no, tell Achami Benatayim, they know Mifak Peik, right? Rabbi Meir says, no, all that you need to do is you actually just have to remove the boards, right? Sorry, you just move the boards, right? Just in other words, essentially almost like pick one up and, and put it back down. So it shows sort of a, um, you know, an intention to use this as your schach, but you don't need to actually remove one of them. Now, what I found interesting is the commentary on this Mishnah from the Gemara is not particularly long. In fact, it doesn't even last, last the whole Amud, but it is rather quite head spinning because it involves sort of three machlokot. What is the distinction between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai? What is the machlokot between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir? And then it brings us back to the machloket that we saw in the previous staff between Rav and Shmuel, right? That machloket being over, when we talk about these boards, are we talking about boards that are four tzvachim wide, right? Which would be the opinion of Rav. Or are we talking about boards that are less than four tzvachim wide, which would be, um, which would be uh, the opinion of Shmuel. And so essentially, you're sort of building upon machloket on top of machloket to sort of understand this one simple Mishnah. Um, and so I thought this was a great example of a Mishnah that I think you actually have to chart out the Gemara that comes from it because there's essentially three levels upon which to understand it. So the first is Rabbi Yehuda's opinion that there's a Machloket of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel and understanding what is that Machloket actually over. Then the layer of trying to understand what do Rabbi Yehuda and what do Rabbi Meir actually disagree about and then the third level is using the understanding of what a board means when we're talking about it in the halakhic context of sukkah, right? How does this mission fit into according to the opinion of Rav? 
or right, meaning with a right, because he understands boards, meaning that they're four tefachim wide. Or how do you understand this mission according to Shmuel, who has an understanding that the board is actually less than four tefachim wide? So I thought this was the first part that was very interesting. The other piece I wanted to point out was just the beginning of the Gemara here, which introduced a concept that we saw previously. Bishlam Beit Hillel. Well, actually, two concepts that we saw before, right? This this makes sense, right? According to Beit Hillel, why Beit Hillel has this, uh, this opinion of either that you have to move the boards or remove one of the boards. And what is it? Tamayu Mishum right? Because this is due to the principle of we have to prepare it and it can't be from something that's already been prepared. So we've already seen this concept with sukkah, right? That if you had a structure that was already built as a sukkah, could you just use it as a sukkah? And we said, no, maybe you can't because of this concept of <coughs> right? That a person needs to do a meaningful action with intention to show that this structure is meant to be for sukkah. And so here is sort of the parallel case of how do you do that when it comes to schach? You have something that's already in place that roofs your sukkah structure, right? And so using the principle, you need to do something to show that this is intentional schach. Even if I could bake, I can't say that word, right? So either you, right? So either you, you know, if you move it, you did an action. Right? And if you took away one of the boards, you did an action. But according to Beit Shama, why would Beit Shama say that you need to do both of these things? Right? If he also believes, that Beit Shama also believes in this concept of the action, so you still, you should only need to do one action. Why should you have to do two actions? Is it because of this Gezera Tikra, right? Which is the decree of the roof of what it means which basically means that one of the concerns we have, and we saw this before, was this takana, and this is where Rabbi Yehud and Rabbi Meir have a machlokas over, did the rabbis actually have this gezerat tikra, which is that there's this concern that if you put certain things or the schach is made a certain way, it's actually too much of a roof, and it's more like you're inside a house and you're not actually inside of a sukkah, right? So if Beit Shammai believes in gezerat tikra, Right, so it should be enough just to remove a board, right? Because once you've done that, right? Once you've removed one of the, it's clearly not a regular roof, right? It has a space there that you wouldn't normally see, and so you've sort of undone this issue of the gezerat tikra. So again, we're not really understanding the Beit Shammai piece. So we're going to say no. It is because of this gezerat tikra. Pake, right, even though you may have moved the boards, right? So, if you move one of the boards, yes, then you've made the schach okay, you made these boards okay. Then, if not, no. So, in other words, what the Gizerati crowd would sort of be saying is the moving the boards is not really what's important, right? It's really about removing one of the boards, right? So, now the Gemara, you know, so I just thought this was interesting because. It, um, it, it, it sort of, it's, you know, again, we're seeing two concepts that we've seen before, right? This Tasa Velomin Haisui and the Gezerat Tikra, right? Which are sort of these two halachic principles that very much apply to sukkah, right? Here, we're sort of applying them to the machlokas of 
Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. But again, I just always like to pay attention to when we sort of see recurring principles, you know, and how they get applied to different types of situations. Here, we're just seeing them applied to a different scenario in Sukkah. It'll be more interesting if we see them appear in even a totally different Masachet with a totally, you know, with a non-Sukkah oriented, uh, with a non-Sukkah oriented um, Machloka. So a very, very uh, sort of uh, short, uh, this is a very short, uh, you know, passage on this Mishnah, but it's actually a very, very dense one. Well, wow. Um, I'm actually going to just jump ahead, I think, if that's okay. Um, unless there's something you want to actually discuss from this. No, I don't think there's much to discuss. I must have done the best job explaining this Mishnah. Ever. I think the best job. There you go. <laughs> okay. So here we go. The next Mishnah is actually shorter and without all the machloket, believe it or not. So if somebody, somebody uses metal skewers, shipudin, like uh, the same way you would have shish kebab or something, right? Shipudin, but longer because it's got to cover the roof, right? Shipudim or long boards from the bed, which I believe also should be, well, they're beams. There's some kind of poles, really. So if they have the amount of space between each of these poles that is equal to the pole itself, to the width of the pole itself, then that will be a kosher setup. So I keep picturing here the kind of sukkah that I grew up with, which was one of those blue and yellow prefab sukkahs with um, bamboo, not the bamboo mats, but the bamboo, the long poles of bamboo. So that, that right, each, the space between the bamboo, presumably the same way here, would need to be at least as wide as each of the, the poles themselves. Uh, but if you were to hollow out a space, uh, this is fantastic. If you were to hollow out a space inside a stack of green, Right, bagadish, to to make a sukkah, that's not a sukkah. So, the first question I have here, Yerdena, and everybody else, is what does the first half of this mishnah have to do with the second half of this mishnah, right? Because they really do seem to be, the like I would expect that if you start talking about the poles, I would expect there to be a comment about the material, right? Is it metal versus wood, let's say, or or I don't know, you know, some other question of how how much space you need to highlight the fact that this kosher that the sukkah is going to be kosher or if i want the prelude to the second half of the mishnah i would think that we'd be talking about all different kinds of shapes and spaces that you could can you turn something into a sukkah if you would hollow it out and instead um i've just got this one example which is the second half of the mishnah i I find it a little bit um like startling disconcerting the way they kind of don't fit together um, but that is what the mission is, right? That the the first part is these poles that cover the whole sukkah, um, and the second part is if you were to hollow out a stack of grain. Okay, I, I, I agree with you. There's something editorially odd about this Mishnah with the stacking of of uh, uh, you know with stacking. I mean, with the placing together of of these two you know sort of scenarios. I, the only thing I could think of is. Uh, you know, it's sort of talking about taking something that I guess you would non-traditionally use as part of your sukkah and making it into a sukkah. So one is, you know, metal skewers or long boards of a, like, isn't really what you would use for a but repurposing it. 
And then sort of if you had, you know, you happen to have this haystack, you know, would you be able to sort of repurpose it? So maybe the connection is repurposing, but I agree, it doesn't seem fully connected because so as you see from the discussion in the Gemara, it deals with totally different halachic principles. So here's my my cheat. How's that? My cheat for an explanation, which is to jump to the next daf. Um, and I'm not going to read it inside because we're going to get to it, right? But the next daf seems to have things lined up from the poles then to other um, vessels. Could you use those as chach? And, you know, what other kinds of strange things that you could put on the roof of the sukkah? Will that work or will that not work? And then it talks about mats, like a made of reeds, let's say. And then from there, it talks about from these mats of reeds, um, you know, what if you were to hollow out the sukkah? I feel like maybe all of those steps, which on the next staff are really included in a brighta, um, maybe they kind of were part of the discussion that was happening, you know, orally, and it didn't make it into the Mishnah, but it was, you know, but you, but you knew, right? Maybe maybe they knew that that's the jump, right? That's that's what I'm was looking for, like the stages between the first half of the mission and the second half of the mission. Maybe it's really there in these bright, which are coming up on the next staff. So, I want to just read a little bit of the Gemara here. Okay, Lema tehave tiyufta deravhuna brid rav Yoshua. So let's say, based on this mission that we've just said, that what we're going to have here is a real tiyufta, a real refutation. Of the opinion of Rav Huna, Rav Huna Brid Rav Yoshua, what did he say? Well, when they were talking about the different Rishiyot of Shabbat, he says, Itamar, parutz, parutz ke'omeg. Right? He says, if you're the 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 part where there's a break, right? Where there's a break in the in the reshut, right? In the seg, in the to make a in the wall, right, is going to be equal to the to the amount that was standing. That made right? That's what it means. That you have the same amount of gap as you have amount of wall. So perhaps this Mishnah, which is talking about poles that are going to be equal width um, from their equal, I don't know how to say this, right? That that each pole is the same width as the gap between it and its neighbor. Rav Pap Omer Mutar Rav Hunabrid Rav Yoshua Amar Asur. So there, in the case of Shabbos, when they're really talking about uh, you know, the partition along a, a wall in terms of establishing your reshut on Shabbat. So Rav Papa would say, I, I mean, he did say, as long as the gap is not greater than the part that is actually wall, then it's as if it kind of, you know, comes together and you've got yourself a solid partition. But Rav Hunabred, Rav Yeshua says, no, it is a sur to carry within that partition that is setting off that domain, unless you could say, definitively that the wall itself is a greater portion, not equal distance, right? Rav Papa says, as long as the breach, as long as the gap is not greater, meaning even including equal distance, then you should be fine. Rav Huna says, no, you have to have, the wall itself has to be the longer part. Otherwise you have too much gap and it will not be considered a valid uh, separation there. So if we then take that back to the Mishnah, it seems that this Mishnah sets up a, sit, uh, a, a scenario that agrees with Rav Papa's position that as long as there was at least equal distance, right, or rather at most equal distance, then you're fine. Whereas Rav, Rav Huna would want to say, no, you would need to have the, the, the poles themselves or the beams themselves be wider than the, than the gaps. 
Now the Gemara is going to answer Rav Yehuna, and with that we'll close. I think um, So what does he say? He could say, "My kmotan benichnas viotze." So what does it mean? How do we understand Rav Huna's position here? Could we say that it's the same thing? Like right? he says, "Like you kmotan." Um, he said, "Where is this that it says that?" Hang on. Um, it's talking about the the other place about talking about the Rishuyot on Shabbat. He says, well, "Well, maybe that kmotan over there." Is talking about the skewers and the gaps and the boards over here with regard to sukkah, right? Maybe that would be exactly what Rav Huna is talking about to say the issue of the Rashid on Shabbat is like, um, is like the sukkah. So Yerdena, to our list of of you know various topics that sukkah gets compared to, now we can talk a bit again about the Rashid of Shabbat, not just other aspects of Shabbat that we've already talked about. So. And then the Gemara goes on to say, like, is that possible to be that precise? Which I think is a really good question when you're talking about exactly how much space can that gap be as compared to the pole? You know, you could make yourself a little crazy to try to have real serious equidistant between each pole, each pole or skewer, whatever, from one to the next. Um, okay. So, so what we're talking about here, again, is figuring out schach. In this case, we're really talking about the coverage, I would say. You know, how much shade is going to be permitted to the ground? Is it going to be sufficient to say that what we have here is schach? And then the second half of that Mishnah, where we're talking about, you know, a standing grain, a haystack, whatever, can you turn it into a sukkah? And the answer is no. We'll come back to as we hit it on on on, on Zion, which is coming up. Well, if I had to sort of frame this whole up, I think here, like we want to meta it, which everyone knows I love to do. <laughs> I think we have two Mishnahs with two different types of very typical analyses. The first Mishnah is one where they try to give a deep dive into what is the Machloket about and how does the understanding of that Mishnah fit with a previous Machloket of the Amorai, right? Can you understand this mission according to Rav? Can you understand this mission according to Shmuel? The second Mishnah is one of those weird Mishnahs that has a case, but like when you really think about it, you're like, not really sure what this case is. And so the Gemara does a lot of, and what I would call filling in the gaps to really be like, oh, and by the way, here is all the additional details you need to know. So you really understand what this case was really talking about. Because if you just read the two lines of the Mishnah, you wouldn't really understand what the case is. And so, oh my goodness, this is—I would say this is a case where the Gemara itself. If you don't sit on this Gemara to understand how it really is calling in the case of Shabbos, it's not explicit in the Daf at all. Anybody who has been a little confused, if you're not using any commentary here, you know, the, this is one of those Daf where the commentary becomes very, very valuable. Yeah, exactly. And so I think these are two sort of very classic. Gemara explanations of Mishnahs, right? Either deep diving into a Machlokas and going back to be like, does it fit into a previous Machlokas or previous opinions we explored? And the second one is really trying to fill in a lot of gaps for a very, uh, let's say, descriptively sparse Mishnah, which must have been, because we know that Mishnah was really an oral tradition, which must have been, I don't want to use, it's not coded language, but in other words, it was using some key words and then the Gemara comes to really build out what that case actually is. Yes, I think that's exactly what's going on here. I think that's very well said. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Bring us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. 
Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.